Section 5 of Victorian Short Stories, Tales of Courtship. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Victorian Short Stories, Tales of Courtship by Hubert Crackenthorpe et al. Anthony Garstin's Courtship by Hubert Crackenthorpe Savoy, July, 1896 Section 5 It was three weeks since he had fetched his flock down from the fell. After dinner he and his mother sat together in the parlour. They had done so every Sunday afternoon, year in and year out, as far back as he could remember. A row of mahogany chairs with shiny horsehair seats were ranged round the room. A great collection of agricultural prize tickets were pinned over the wall, and on a heavy, highly polished sideboard stood several silver cups. A heap of gilt-edged shavings filled the unused grate. There were gaudily tinted roses along the mantelpiece, and on a small table by the window, beneath a glass case, a gilt basket filled with imitation flowers. Every object was disposed with a scrupulous precision. The carpet and the red pattern cloth on the centre table were much faded. The room was spotlessly clean and wore, in the chilly winter sunlight, a rigid, comfortless air. Neither spoke or appeared conscious of the other's presence. Old Mrs. Garstin, wrapped in a woollen shawl, sat knitting. Anthony dozed fitfully on a stiff-backed chair. Of a sudden, in the distance, a bell started tolling. Anthony rubbed his eyes drowsily, and taking from the table his Sunday hat, strolled out across the dusky fields. Presently, reaching a rude wooden seat, built beside the bridle-path, he sat down and relit his pipe. The air was very still. Below him a white, filmy mist hung across the valley. The fell-sides, vaguely grouped, resembled hulking masses of sombre shadow, and as he looked back, three squares of glimmering gold revealed the lighted windows of the square-towered church. He sat smoking, pondering, with placid and reverential contemplation on the mighty maker of the world, a world majestically and inevitably ordered, a world where, he argued, each object, each fissure in the fells, the winding course of each tumbling stream, possesses its mysterious purport, its inevitable signification. At the end of the field two rams were fighting, retreating, then running together, and, leaping from the ground, butting head to head and horn to horn, Antony watched them, absently, pursuing his rude meditations. And the succession of bad seasons, the slow ruination of the farmers throughout the country, were but punishment meted out for the accumulated wickedness of the world. In the olden time God rained plagues upon the land. Nowadays, in his wrath, he spoiled the produce of the earth, which, with his own hands, he had fashioned and bestowed upon men. He rose and continued his walk along the bridle-path. A multitude of rabbits scuttled up the hill at his approach, and a great cloud of plovers, rising from the rushes, circled overhead, filling the air with a profusion of their querulous cries. All at once he heard a rattling of stones, and perceived a number of small pieces of shingle bounding in front of him down the grassy slope. A woman's figure was moving among the rocks above him. 
the next moment by the trimming of crimson velvet on her hat he had recognized her he mounted the slope with springing strides wondering the while how it was she came to be there that she was not in church playing the organ at afternoon service before she was aware of his approach he was beside her i thought you'd be in church he began she started then gradually regaining her composure answered weakly smiling mr jenkinson the new schoolmaster wanted to try the organ he came towards her impulsively she saw the odd flickers in his eyes as she stepped back in dismay nay but i will not harm you he said only i reckon what tis a special turn of providence meeting with you up here i reckon what you'll have to give me a square answer no you canna dilly-dally everlastingly he spoke almost brutally and she stood white and gasping staring at him with large frightened eyes the sheep-walk was but a tiny thread-like track the slope of the shingle on either side was very steep below them lay the valley distant lifeless all blurred by the evening dusk she looked about her helplessly for a means of escape miss rosa he continued in a husky voice can ye na come to think o' me think ye i've been waiting nigh upon two year for ye i've watched ye take up first with this young feller and then with that till sometimes my heart's fit to burst many a day up unto felltop to thought ye is nice driven me daft and I've left my shepherdin just to set on cairn, int mist, picturin' and broodin' on your face. Many an evening I started up to vicarage with resolution to speak right out to you. But when it come to point, a sort of timidity seemed to hold me back. I was that fear to displease you. I know I'm no scholar, and maybe you think I'm rough-mannered. I know I've spoken sharply to you once or twice lately, but it's just because I'm that mad with love for you. I just canna help myself sometimes. He waited, peering into her face. She could see the beads of sweat above his bristling eyebrows. The damp had settled on his sandy beard. His horny fingers were twitching at the buttons of his black Sunday coat. She struggled to summon a smile, but her underlip quivered, and her large dyke eyes filled slowly with tears. And he went on, You come to mean just everything to me. If you'll na have me, I care for naught else. I canna speak to you in phrases. I'm just a plain, unscholarly man. I canna wheedle you with cunning and to fashion o' tomb folks, but I can love you at all my might and watch over you and work for you better than any one of em. She was crying to herself silently while he spoke. He noticed nothing, however. The twilight hid her face from him. There's naught against me, he persisted. I'm as good a man as any one of em. Ay, as good a man as any one o' em, he repeated defiantly, raising his voice. It's impossible, Mr. Garston, it's impossible. You've been very kind to me, she added in a choking voice. Why, well, dang it, I didn't a mean to make you cry, lass, he exclaimed with a softening of his tone. There's naught for you to cry over. She sank onto the stones, passionately sobbing in hysterical and defenceless despair antony stood a moment gazing at her in clumsy perplexity then coming close to her put his hand on her shoulder and said gently come lass what's trouble you can trust me she shook her head faintly ay but you can though he asserted firmly come what is't 
heedless of him she continued to rock herself to and fro crooning in her distress oh i wish i were dead i wish i could die wish you could die he repeated why whatever can be that's troubling you like this there there lassie give over it'll all come right whatever it be no no she wailed i wish i could die i wish i could die lights were twinkling in the village below and across the valley darkness was draping the hills the girl lifted her face from her hands and looked up at him with a scared bewildered expression i must go home i must be getting home she muttered nay but there's something mighty amiss wi you no tis nothing no it's nothing i don't know i'm not well i mean it's nothing it'll pass over you mustn't think anything of it nay but i canna stand by and see you in such trouble it's nothing mr garston indeed it's nothing she repeated ay but i canna credit that he objected stubbornly she sent him a shifting hunted glance let me get home you must let me get home she made a tremulous pitiful attempt at firmness eyeing her keenly he barred her path she flushed scarlet and looked hastily away across the valley if you tell me your distress maybe i can help you no no it's nothing it's nothing if you tell me your distress maybe i can help you he repeated with a solemn deliberate sternness she shivered and looked away again vaguely across the valley you can do nothing there's naught to be done she murmured drearily there's a man in this business he declared let me go let me go she pleaded desperately who is it that's been putting you into this distress his voice sounded loud and harsh no one no one i canna tell you mr garston it's no one she protested weakly the white twisted look on his face frightened her my god he burst out gripping her wrist and a proper soft fool you made o' me who is it i tell you who's the man you're hurting me i canna tell you and you're fond o him oh no he's a wicked sinful man i pray god i may never set eyes on him again i told him so but if he's a got you into trouble he'll have to marry you he persisted with a brutal bitterness i will not i hate him she cried fiercely but is he willing to marry you i don't know i don't care he said so before he went away but i'll kill myself sooner than live with him he let her hands fall and stepped back from her she could only see his figure like a sombre cloud standing before her the whole fell side seemed still and dark and lonely presently she heard his voice again i reckon what there's one road o to your distress she shook her head drearily there's none i'm a lost woman and if you took me instead he said eagerly i, I don't understand if you married me instead of luke stock but that's impossible the the ay it's a child i know but i'll take the child as mine she remained silent after a moment he heard her voice answer in a queer distant tone you mean that that you're ready to marry me and adopt the child i do he answered doggedly but people your mother folks'll just know naught about it it's none of their business child'll pass as mine you'll accept that yes she answered in a low rapid voice you consent to have me if i get you out of your trouble yes she repeated in the same tone 
she heard him draw a long breath i said twas a turn of providence meeting will you appear he exclaimed with a half suppressed exultation her teeth began to chatter a little she felt that he was peering at her curiously through the darkness and no he continued brusquely you best be getting home give me your hand and i'll steady you o'er the stones he helped her down the bank of shingle exclaiming by gum you're stony cold once or twice she slipped he supported her roughly gripping her knuckles the stones rolled down the steps noisily disappearing into the night presently they struck the turf bridle path and as they descended silently towards the lights of the village he said gravely i always reckoned what my dead come she made no reply and he added grimly there'll be terrible work with mother over this he accompanied her down the narrow lane that led past her uncle's house when the lighted windows came in sight he halted good night lassie he said kindly do you give over distressing yourself good night mr garstin she answered in the same low rapid voice in which she had given her answer up on the fell we're man and plighted wife now are we not he blurted timidly she held her face to his and he kissed her on the cheek clumsily section six the next morning the frost had set in the sky was still clear and glittering the whitened fields sparkled in the chilly sunlight here and there on high distant peaks gleamed dainty caps of snow all the week antony was to be busy at the fell foot wall building against the coming of the winter storms the work was heavy for he was single-handed and the stone had to be fetched from the fell side two or three times a day he led his rickety lumbering cart along the lane that passed the vicarage gate pausing on each journey to glance furtively up at the windows but he saw no sign of rosa blencarn and indeed he felt no longing to see her he was grimly exultant over the remembrance of his wooing of her and over the knowledge that she was his there glowed within him a stolid pride in himself he thought of the others who had courted her and the means by which he had won her seemed to him a fine stroke of cleverness and so he refrained from any mention of the matter relishing as he worked all alone the days through the consciousness of his secret triumph and anticipating with inward chucklings the discomforted cackle of his mother's female friends he foresaw without misgiving her bitter opposition he felt himself strong and his heart warmed towards the girl and when at intervals the brusque realization that after all he was to possess her swept over him he gripped the stones and swung them almost fiercely into their places all around him the white empty fields seemed slumbering breathlessly the stillness stiffened the leafless trees the frosty air flicked his blood singing vigorously to himself he worked with a stubborn unflagging resolution methodically postponing till the length of the war should be completed the announcement of his betrothal after his reticent solitary fashion he was very happy reviewing his future prospects with a plain and steady assurance and as the weekend approached coming to ignore the irregularity of the whole business almost to assume in the exultation of his pride that he had won her honestly and to discard stolidly all thought of luke's stock of his relations with her of the coming child that was to pass for his own and there were moments too when as he sauntered homewards through the dusk at the end of his day's work 
his heart grew full to overflowing of a rugged superstitious gratitude towards god in heaven who had granted his desires about three o'clock on the saturday afternoon he finished the length of war he went home washed shaved put on his sunday coat and avoiding the kitchen where his mother sat knitting by the fireside strode up to the vicarage it was rosa who opened the door to him on recognizing him she started and he followed her into the dining-room he seated himself and began brusquely i've come miss rosa to speak to mr blencarn then added eyeing her closely you're looking sick lass her faint smile accentuated the worn white look on her face i reckon you've been fretting yourself he continued gently lean awake a night some you know she smiled vaguely well but you seen i've come to set the whole business for you you thought maybe i wasn't a man o my word no no not that she protested but 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 what then you must not do it mr garstin i must just bear my own trouble the best i can she broke out do you fancy i'm taking you out of charity you little reckon the sort of stuff my love for you's made of nay miss rosa but you canna draw back no but you cannot do it mr garstin i know your mother will na have me at hootsey i couldn't live there with your mother i'd sooner bear my trouble alone as best i can she's that stern is mrs garstin i couldn't look her in the face i can go away somewhere i could keep it all from uncle her colour came and went she stood before him looking away from him dully out of the window i intend ye to come to hootsey i'm the lad i reckon i can choose my own wife mother'll have ye to farm right enough you needna distress yourself on that point nay mr garstin but indeed she will not never i know she will not she always set herself against me right from the first ay but that was different the case is all changed no he objected doggedly she'll support the sight of me all the less the girl faltered mother'll have ye at hootsey receive ye willing her, uh, her own free wish ye hear i'll answer for that he struck the table with his fist heavily his tone of determination awed her she glanced at him hurriedly struggling with her irresolution i know how to manage mother and now he concluded changing his tone is your uncle about to place he's up the paddock i think she answered well i just step up and have a word with him yet yeah, you will not tell him tat tat narrowing tout no harrowing tales you need na fear lass i reckon if i can tackle mother i can accommodate myself to parson blencarn he rose and coming close to her scanned her face you must get to rosie's back in your cheeks he exclaimed with a short laugh i canna be taking a ghost to church she smiled tremulously and he continued laying one hand affectionately on her shoulder nay but i was just jesting roses or no roses you be to bonnie's brides in all cumberland i'll meet you in hullam lane after church time to-morrow he added moving towards the door after he had gone she hurried to the back door furtively his retreating figure was already mounting the grey upland field presently beyond him she perceived her uncle emerging through the paddock gate she ran across the poultry yard she ran across the poultry yard and mounting a tub stood watching the two figures as they moved towards one another along the brow antony vigorously trudging with his hands thrust deep in his pockets her uncle his wide-awake tilted-over nose hobbling and leaning stiffly on his pair of sticks they met 
she saw Antony take her uncle's arm. The two, turning together, strolled away towards the fell. She went back into the house. Antony's dog came towards her, slinking along the passage. She caught the animal's head in her hands and bent over it caressingly, in an impulsive outburst of almost hysterical affection. Section 7 The two men returned towards the vicarage. At the paddock gate they halted, and the old man concluded, "'I could not have wished a better man for her, Antony. Maybe the Lord'll not be minded to spare me much longer. After I'm gone, Rose'll have all I possess. She was my poor brother Isaac's only child. After her mother was taken, he, poor fellow, went altogether to the bad, and until she came here she mostly lived among strangers.' It's been a wretched sort of childhood for her, a wretched sort of childhood. You'll take care of her, Antony, will you not? Nay, but I could not have wished a better man for her, and there's my hand on it. Thank ye, Mr. Blencarn, thank ye, Antony answered huskily, gripping the old man's hand. And he started off down the lane homewards. His heart was full of a strange, rugged exultation. He felt with a swelling pride that God had entrusted to him this great charge, to tend her, to make up to her, tenfold, for all that loving care which, in her childhood, she had never known. And, together with a stubborn confidence in himself, there welled up within him a great pity for her, a tender pity, that, chastening with his passion, made her seem to him, as he brooded over that lonely childhood of hers, the more distinctly beautiful, the more profoundly precious. He pictured to himself tremulously almost incredulously their married life in the winter his return home at nightfall to find her awaiting him with a glad trustful smile their evenings passed together sitting in silent happiness over the smouldering logs or in summer time the midday rest in the hayfields when wearing perhaps a large brimmed hat fastened with a red ribbon beneath her chin he would catch sight of her carrying his dinner coming across the upland she had not been brought up to be a farmer's wife. She was but a child still, as the old parson had said. She should not have to work as other men's wives work. She should dress like a lady, and on Sundays in church wear fine bonnets, and remain, as she always had been, the belle of the parish. And meanwhile he would farm, as he had never farmed before, watching his opportunities, driving cunning bargains, spending nothing on himself, hoarding every penny that she might have what she wanted and as he strode through the village he seemed to foresee a general brightening of prospects a sobering of the fever of speculation in sheep a cessation of the insensate glutting year after year of the great winter marts throughout the north a slackening of the foreign competition followed by a steady revival of the price of fatted stocks a period of prosperity in store for the farmer at last, and the future years appeared to open out before him, spread like a distant, glittering plain, across which he and she, hand in hand, were called to travel together. And then, suddenly, as his iron-bound boots clattered over the cobbled yard, he remembered, with brutal determination, his mother, and the stormy struggle that awaited him. He waited till supper was over, till his mother had moved from the table to her place by the chimney-corner. For several minutes he remained debating with himself the best method of breaking the news to her. Of a sudden he glanced up at her. Her knitting had slipped on to her lap. She was sitting, 
bunched of a heap in her chair nodding with sleep by the flickering light of the wood fire she looked worn and broken he felt a twinge of clumsy compunction and then he remembered the piteous hunted look in the girl's eyes and the old man's words when they had parted at the paddock gate and he blurted out i do but what i'll have to marry rosa blencarn after all she started and blinking her eyes said i was just taking a wink of sleep what was it you were saying tony he hesitated a moment pluckering his forehead into coarse rugged lines and fidgeting noisily with his teacup presently he repeated i do but i'll have to marry rosa blencarn after all she rose stiffly and stepping down from the hearth came towards him maybe i didn't hear you right tony she spoke hurriedly and though she was quite close to him steadying herself with one hand clutching the back of his chair her voice sounded weak distant almost look up at me look up at my face she commanded fiercely he obeyed sullenly no with it what's your meaning tony i mean what i say he retorted doggedly averting his gaze what do you mean by saying that you've got to marry her i tell you i mean what i say he repeated dully you mean you've been and put the girl in trouble he said nothing but sat staring stupidly at the floor look up at me and answer she commanded gripping his shoulder and shaking him he raised his face slowly and met her glance ay that's about it he answered this'll na be truth it'll just be a piece o wanton trickery she cried nay but it's a truth he answered deliberately you will na swear to it she persisted i see na necessity for swearing then you canna swear to it she burst out triumphantly he paused an instant and then said quietly ay but i'll swear to it easy enough fetch the book she lifted the heavy tattered bible from the chimney-piece and placed it before him on the table he laid his lumpish fist on it say she continued with a tense tremulousness say i swear to your mother that tis the truth told truth and not but the truth s'elp me god i swear to your mother tis the truth told truth and nothing but the truth s'elp me god he repeated after her kiss the book she ordered he lifted the bible to his lips as he replaced it on the table he burst into a short laugh be you satisfied no she went back to the chimney without a word the logs on the hearth hissed and crackled outside amidst the blackness the wind was rising hooting through the firs and past the windows after a long while he roused himself and drawing his pipe from his pocket almost steadily proceeded leisurely to pare in the palm of his hand a lump of black tobacco we'll be asked in church sunday he remarked bluntly she made no answer he looked across at her her mouth was drawn tight at the corners her face wore a queer rigid aspect she looked he thought like a figure of stone you're not feeling poorly are you mother he asked she shook her head grimly then hobbling out into the room began to speak in a shrill tuneless voice you talked at one time o taking a farm over in scardell's way but you best stop here i'll not hinder you you can have the large bedroom in front and i'll move over to what used to be my brother jake's room you know i've never had an opinion of the girl but i'll do what's right by her if if i break my spirit on the doing of it 
I made the girl welcome here, I'll stand by a proper life. Maybe I'll finish by finding some good in her. But from this day forward, Tony, you're no son of mine. You dishonoured yourself. You laid a trap for me, and laid a trap, that's the word. You brought shame and bitterness onto your old mother in her old age. You made me despise the very set to you. You can stop on here, but you shall never touch a penny of my money. Every shilling of it shall go to your child, or to your child's children. Aye she went on raising her voice ay you've got your way at last and maybe you reckon you've chosen a mighty smart way but time'll come when you'll regret this day when you'll eat you to your repentance and doos to ashes ay lord'll punish you tony chastise you properly you learn that marriage begun in sin can end in naught but sin ay she concluded as she reached the door raising her skinny hand prophetically ay and after i'm dead and gone ye minded the words of the apostle for them that have sinned without law shall also perish without law and she slammed the door behind her end of antony garstin's courtship by hubert crackenthorpe 